As was mentioned previously, what a grand delight is ours today to assemble in the name of the God of heaven and to do so with a desire to lift high His name and exalt the glory that certainly is due and rightfully so to Him. And indeed, the greatness of this occasion, it is the first day of the week, that day on which we have been given commandment to in fact honor and exalt and worship Him in the way that we certainly are doing this morning. The songs that we have sung, at least in part, have directed us to an appreciation of the lesson that shall be ours for consideration this morning. And as you can see, it is involving a study of eternal life. A subject that no doubt is of intense interest to each of us, and a study, in fact, that will be very revealing in many ways as we focus upon three verses found in 1 John, the fifth chapter. To perhaps prepare us for that, though, some remarks of introduction might well be these. Isn't it amazing, as learned as our society is, and as often as we have recourse to a dictionary either in book form or online, that there are many things that one can state that are easy to define, and yet there are many things that are very difficult to define. Have you ever had the occurrence, the circumstance of consulting a dictionary and reading the definition that some scholar or group of scholars have written, only to be left somewhat without as you finish it? You have the sense that that definition does not do justice to the term being considered. And you have the sense it really does not consider the fullness of that matter. I'd submit to you that some of those words, in fact, are the most basic and powerful words, though, of all. Like life and like death. If you consult a dictionary and look, in fact, to the definition of the word life, you will find it to be very lacking. It somewhat will state something to the effect of the matter of not being dead. And if you consult a dictionary to, in fact, discuss death, it may likely say something like to not be alive. In other words, these really are not defined in the fullness and character of what one would hope to find the meaning. I might submit to you that these are two terms for which one seems to only find reasonable definitions upon looking at the author of the very nature of life itself. What does the Bible say about life and what in fact does it define death to be? Today as we look at these, we will be led to a consideration of that most special life, eternal life, everlasting life. And in so doing, notice one of the closing things we'll state about this particular slide. This matter of eternal life is terribly engaging. It is a subject that has all the nature of being compelling, all the nature of being thoroughly that which in fact should grasp everything that is you and that is me. For you see, eternal life is far more than just a minor consideration. It is a life that has no end and a life that has all the greatness attached to all that God promises to be associated with it. It is with all that in mind that in fact these thoughts may next appear before us. Might we notice some Bible definitions now? Definitions that I've phrased in the following way. I mentioned in passing the rather hopeless definitions that men have attempted to give for life. In addition to being hopeless, by I state, they are also rather cheerless. They are somewhat discouraging. In fact, they may even be called distressing, but at the very least, they are hopeless. These definitions in which they attempt to specify what life is, utterly void in most cases of meaning. 
But it is not so with God's book. It isn't so with the definitions that He provides. Might we start in James 2.26, the closing verse to that chapter. On that occasion, For as the body without the spirit is dead, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead also. And in one momentous sweep, in one profound utterance of the Holy Spirit, we have the inspired definition of life. It is that state of affairs that prevails when the Spirit inhabits the body. Simply stated, that is it. And hence, you and I, as I look upon this audience today, each and every one of us, as human beings, are alive physically because that Spirit that is you and that is me indwells the body. And thus, it animates it. It is the force that provides life to that body, to your body and mine. That particular idea and thought challenges us to notice then, by definition, what death is. That state of affairs that prevails when the Spirit does not inhabit the body. In other words, that body with its animating force, with its vital force no longer inhabiting it, no longer providing it in the necessary features and factors concerning life, the body is now said to be dead. Simple and yet profound all at the same time. To think of it from that perspective does lead you to note this. The Bible on many occasions, not just this one passage, but many others, in fact, makes reference to this reality. We could revisit Abraham for just a moment. We notice in Genesis 25, 8, that here was Abraham. He had reached the end of his sojourn in the flesh, and the text simply says, he gave up the ghost. And he was gathered into his people. He gave up the ghost, meaning that that spirit that really was Abraham exited the body. And thus, his family was left to bury the body. It was said to be dead. But Abraham wasn't dead. Abraham was still as alive as he had ever been. And in fact, arguably even more so, for he was now gathered to his people. He was enjoying all the pristine character of what was life after the matter of the grave. Notice in Genesis 35, 18, we have another rather telling episode in which this time Rachel, that beloved wife of Jacob, passed away, but she did so in giving birth to their youngest son. You'll notice, though, that as that happened, it says, the text affirms as she died, but parenthetically it notes, as her soul was departing. Notice it doesn't say her soul died or her soul was exterminated, or her soul was annihilated, it said it departed. Might we thus pause, is there life after death? Many a philosopher and many a sage throughout the ages has wrestled with that notion. How many have stood over a casket, over a loved one, a friend or otherwise, and wondered, what now? Is this person still alive somewhere that I can't see? Is this person still in existence somewhere beyond the realm of what mortal eye can, can appreciate? In these two instances, and yea, a host of others, we find the overwhelming biblical evidence to be, by all means, yes. Abraham was very much still alive. So was Rachel. Can we not perhaps see just a few others briefly in passing? In 1 Kings 17, 22, as well as that passage in Acts 7, 59, in fact, it is that last one to which we'll make one last comment on this slide. Stephen, 
How well might we recall the circumstances surrounding Stephen's death? Here was an individual who in boldness and courageousness had proclaimed the glory and beauty of the power of God and in fact had directly laid the finger of regret upon the Jews for their failure to accept the Christ. And yet as he closed the sermon, they were so upset by him and so unwilling to receive the message that they picked up rocks, cast at Stephen and ultimately led to his death. But his dying words were this, As he looked up into heaven and as he saw the Master, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Was it true that Stephen understood that there was life after death? Did Stephen appreciate the fact that though they were going to bring about his death in a few moments, that that was not the end? Easy enough to see, isn't it? Life after death is taught, of course, in the Word of God, and we each can stand beautifully appreciative of all that God promises with regard to that eventuality. You'll notice, then as we think about what is involved in each of those instances, wasn't it this? So long as the animating force was united with the body, that body enjoyed physical life. But when there was a separation, when that spirit did not in fact inhabit the body, the body was said to be dead. I wonder if eternal life works the same way. Can we think of eternal life in that same matter? Can we approach it from the same angle or from the same perspective? Some thoughts from that text in 1 John then are these. You'll notice that again if we should read that, the words in fact will give us four lessons, four matters, four matter things that you and I can appreciate. Beginning in verse number 11 of 1 John chapter 5. And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life, but he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God the subject of eternal life, let us place that on an even firmer footing. So far we have looked at some Old Testament passages and even hinted at some in the New. But you'll notice in verse number 11 it says, This is the record. That word record actually means testimony, evidence, or witness. In other words, by decree of God, this is the witness. This is the affirmation. This, in essence, is the evidence. John leaves no question, he leaves no doubt as to the reality and the powerful reality that is eternal life. This is the record, he wrote, that God hath given to us eternal life, and hence one of our opening lessons must surely be this, that the source of eternal life is God. The source of eternal life is God. You and I know well that in order to acquire something, in order to in fact have availability to it, we proceed to the place where the source is. As the season for much shopping is upon us, one knows that to find something you want, you go to the store that has it. Or you order it online from a place that sells it. May we say in terms of eternal life, there is only one source. 
Ultimately, it flows only from the character of God Himself and thus is bequeathed in the way that He claims and in the way He testifies. It is fruitless and faultless to seek it in a way other than its source. And so as we learn more about eternal life, notice some of these comments. Isn't it amazing to think about the adjective itself, eternal? That which is unceasing, that which has no end. That certainly doesn't seem to befit physical life, does it? This life you and I now enjoy in the flesh, it seems so brief, it seems so limited. And doesn't the Bible testify of the same? In, first, in James 4, verses 13 and 14, we there read, For what is your life? It is even as a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. You and I know well how quickly that early morning vapor or fog appears this time of year and by 7.30 or 8 o'clock she's completely gone. A vapor that appeareth for a little while and vanishes the way. That's your life, the inspired writer said. In Psalm 90, verse number 10, The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength sorrow and labor. For we must soon fly away. Isn't it amazing the brevity of life? In Psalm 39, 5, we read there that your life and mine is likened unto a handbreadth. There are many measures of length that are longer than a handbreadth. We think about miles and yards and feet, but yet a handbreadth is only about four inches. Your life is like a handbreadth, the inspired writer said. You'll notice that Job on one occasion even likened our life in its swiftness to a weaver's shuttle. Maybe you and I don't often watch a person as he or she use a spinning wheel or looms over that kind of matter any longer, but imagine how quickly that shuttle moves as she drives it with, the, with her foot. That's the extent of your life and mine. But yet that contrasts to the matter of eternal life, doesn't it? This life in the flesh that's so brief is contrasted to this life that's called un unending, eternal. Don't you want to enjoy that? Does not, do not I wish to enjoy the same? In fact, some of these thoughts challenge us to appreciate this. If it's true that this physical life is the result of that unit union of this body with that, in, with that spirit, what is it then that's the cause or the generating feature of eternal life? Isn't it also the union of the matter with, of course, its ultimate source and supply? Consider some of these passages if you would. In Genesis 2-7, we read in the long ago, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. When there was that union of the body and the spirit, that body was alive. It enjoyed all the blessings of living upon this earth. But now, translate that into the spiritual regime for just a moment. That eternal life is something bequeathed when you and I satisfy those matters discussed in the Word of God. If He's the giver of it, on what terms does He give it? And in what nature does He provide it? Is it free for one and all? Are there conditions to be met? Are there things that you and I must do to be described as those enjoying of the matter of eternal life? We likely already appreciate the thrust of those answers. 
But at this point, might I ask you to notice again verse 11 of 1 John 5. This is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. Who is the us? John clearly refers, including himself, in a group of people that are the blessed beneficiaries of those looking forward to eternal life. Who are they? Who is the us? Did you notice verse 13 to find it? These things have I written unto you. So that you is another reference to the us, and it's defined in the following way, that believe on the name of the Son of God. Believers on the name of the Son of God. Those who have an application in mind to putting into practice all that goes with belief in Jesus. Friend, if you and I do not believe in God and believe in His Son, eternal life is out of the question. Eternal life is not a possibility. It is thus reserved for that us. That are described as the you in verse 13. Are you and I convicted and convinced believers in the Christ, all that He has revealed and that which His Word has proclaimed and declared? At this point, Eternal life, you'll notice, is not just a dim, slim hope. He says that you may know it. Though we will have opportunity to look at that in just a moment more thoroughly, might it be noted that that does lead us to this second lesson. And I've stated in language like this, this eternal life in verses 11 and 12 is further described in, the, in this way. This life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. As we've noted earlier, how straightforward. Eternal life is to be found only in the Son of God. We noted God is the source, and now we see particularly the way that God bequeaths or provides that, that eternal life. It's only through the nature of the Son. Those who thus have little interest and no regard for the Son of God, those who do not live their life based upon Him, eternal life is out of the question. Now you'll note we are not saying that they will cease to exist. It's just that they will not enjoy an eternity of life. They may enjoy an eternity of death. They will enjoy an eternity of separation from God, but it certainly will be no pleasing, favorable, kind variety of life. And, that's in, and that itself still isn't all. For you'll notice again, some of the things affirmed is the following way. He that hath the Son hath life. Verse 11 stated it like this. Amazingly, that life is in His Son. It thus means one must be in His Son. And how does one do that? How does one become identified with His Son? How does one thus dwell in Him? It is forever an amazing thing that God has answered that question. We are given the express decree of God. Notice these verses if you would. Romans 6 beginning in verse 3. As Paul discussed the character relating to the congregation in Rome, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Thus, as being raised into newness of life, they were able to walk with Him. 
And all that was possible because, again, they'd been buried with Him. Notice another in Galatians 3, beginning in verse 26. You are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Isn't it still tremendously beautiful to listen to the inspired apostles say that you who were baptized were baptized into Christ, and as such you now dwell in Him. Paul could put it in these words in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet tis not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. All of those things help us see that there is a monumental transformation that occurs in the act of baptism. It is so much more than just a outward show, as some would call it. In fact, it isn't called a show at all in the Bible. God doesn't approve anything to be done for a show. We aren't in this world just to entertain somebody else. Baptism is, in fact, that manner in which that old man of sin is buried, for he's dead. And one rises to walk in newness of life, and in that manner and in that way, one is united with Christ and thus has arraigned himself in line to be the recipient of eternal life. The recipient of eternal life. Because one's in Christ, and one is connected in unity to its source, namely the Son of God. What's more, you'll appreciate that that leads us to a rather strong statement, doesn't it? Many, many things can be had in this life. An education, a fine job, a beautiful house, a lovely wife, terrific children. One can enjoy a lot of things, but one thing outside of Christ cannot be had, either here or hereafter, and that's eternal life. Without Christ, there is no eternal life. It is no wonder then that here John so powerfully affirmed that to these individuals, there's much history that might be shared because there were some misunderstandings amongst the people to whom John wrote this book. And one of the misunderstandings was the very nature of life and death. You can see why John touched the subject so often. They needed some further understanding. And eternal life was one of the matters they did not understand. He thus affirmed for them clearly in mind that this last thought should now be understood by all of us too. You and I live in a world and in an age, and perhaps it's ever been so, but it seems so very common that many think eternal life is just an automatic matter, guaranteed to practically everybody without condition. John did not teach any such. And in fact, the Holy Scriptures do not teach that either. He again says that the you and the us of verse 13 are those that believe on the Savior that they've relinquished control of their life to Him and they live in faithful obedience day by day to the commandments that He has revealed. It is only to those that the eternal promise of eternal life, in fact, is set before them. If you and I in foolishness live otherwise, we ought not think that eternal life will be ours. All of that does point us to the very next matter, though a third lesson out of this group of passages. In fact, this one is most thoroughly seen in one of the earlier verses of this book. In verse 25 of 1 John 2, listen to how eternal life is presented here. 
And this is the promise that He hath promised us, even eternal life. This is the promise that He has promised us, even eternal life. Eternal life is described as a promise. Isn't it amazing to think of God's promise and the sureness and certainty associated with it to those, again, that are, are the believers in the Christ? That does lead us to appreciate that this is a glorious reality to be received on that day of judgment. When, in fact, entrance into the glorious portals and abode of heaven will then be a reality, understood thoroughly and known by those who have been judged faithful on that occasion. You see, eternal life is a matter to be appreciated in language like this. The realization of it, so very sweet, so very beautiful. At this point, might we think about the way in which our life is lived here. We live in this mortal flesh, encumbered with the reality of sin about us. As we observe it in society, observe it sometimes even in ourselves. We notice that there's coming a day on that day of judgment when in faithfulness, the blood of Christ having cleansed all of your sins and mine, having lived faithfully, at that point there will no longer be the possibility of apostasy. No longer the possibility of sin. And thus entrance into the place of everlasting life in unison with the giver of life will then be possible. But doesn't this now point us to that other reality? If Christ is in heaven, in Hebrews 6 verses 19 and 20 affirms that He is, and Revelation 4 as well as Revelation 11 affirms that He is, then what shall be said of those who on that day of judgment are judged to be unfaithful. They will not be allowed to be united with the Savior who is the giver of eternal life, and hence eternal life shall not be theirs. They will be cast, you see, into a place described elsewhere like this, a place of outer darkness, a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 25, a place known as hell prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41, that place described in Revelation 20, verses 10 and 11, a place that there is where the devil and all the others will be cast into a lake burning with fire and brimstone. We now notice why that's not called eternal life, because Christ is not there. And He is the one that gives eternal life, and hence it is, that they again will not cease to be, but it will be a place of anguish, torment, unpleasantness of the highest order, a place without God and His Son, a place of darkness, outer darkness at that. You see, eternal life is such a special thing. It is a grand and glorious reward, a reward that's described as a promise. In Titus 1 verse 2, the inspired apostle Paul puts it in these words, "...in hope of eternal life, which God that promised cannot lie." We know that God is a God of truth. And He is a God that sets forth that which He is. If that be true and He's promised eternal life, don't you and I want to be the recipients of it? Do we not want to be in a position on that marvelous and glorious day of judgment to be united with the Son? Not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N. Because it's only in Him that we will be blessed with eternal life. All of that points us to the very last lesson of the day, the fourth one for our time this morning, drawn from a little verb 
John used in verse 13. If you wish to read that verse again, it says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And the word to which I refer is that word know, K-N-O-W. K-N-O-W. You and I so frequently use that word, and perhaps we do so with little thought as to what it means. It is a good thing to know certain things. That teacher passes out a test and the child writes down that 2 plus 2 is 4. He knows this. Or when asked what the capital of Tennessee is, she says Nashville because she knows this. He and she knows something. John here said that you may know that you have eternal life. Even though we appreciate that eternal life by the character of its revelation will be presented on that day of judgment because it is a hope until then. And why should a man hope for that which he sees? Romans 8.24 We now appreciate that you and I, by measuring our life by the standard of this book, we can know whether or not we are living faithfully to what God has commanded. We can sense, because this is the perfect law of liberty, James 1.25. It is a mirror that in fact will show forth to us the very character of who and what we are. Am I a hypocrite and trying to cover over the well-known sins of my life and others know it too? Or am I genuinely and earnestly, feverishly and devotedly striving to live in harmony with His Word? God knows the answer and you and I in all honesty know it too. The question then comes that you may know that you have eternal life. The question for you and me right now is this, do you know that you have eternal life? If you pass from this life this afternoon, what shall be your eternal destination? Be honest with yourself. God, of course, already knows the answer, but you, of course, also need to react. If you are a faithful child of God at this moment, praise God for that. Continue to live in full faithfulness to the Word that He has revealed. Place all confidence and trust in the Master, in the nature of His revealed commandments, and follow them until death, Revelation 2.10. Even if it costs you your life itself, be faithful. However, if upon analysis of your life at this moment, you know, you know that something isn't right. You know that there are things in your life separating you from the love and mercy of God because right now you've spurned His offers. You have not followed His will faithfully. It may be that as a previous faithful child of God, you've erred from the faith. You have begun to walk in ways that you know are not right. You've said things, been places, done things, you've even thought things, and you've allowed them to emanate in actions and you know that others are well aware of it. If that is the statement of your life at this very moment, notice that you may know that you have eternal life. If you put yourself in that position now and know that you haven't been faithful, please remember that 2 Peter 2.20 says the latter end is worse than the beginning. You are not in a saved position in that state. Might we suggest God holds out though a hand of offer and invitation. He wants you to simply realize the urgency of the moment. Repent of those sins. Come back to Christ. Pray for forgiveness. 
if though you've never become a Christian, there's a different plan of salvation for you. For as we've learned earlier in the lesson, you have yet to be united with Christ to begin with. That happens in the culminating act of baptism. If today we could be of assistance, the baptismal waters behind me are warm and ready. A congregation of people will be excited to rejoice over your obedience. In that act of baptism, we first would, of course, be mindful of your repentance and your belief. We would, of course, take that confession that's so beautiful. And then we would simply immerse you in water for the forgiveness of your sins. If today you do not know that you have eternal life, don't leave this building in that condition. Do not take a chance. It's too risky. Eternity hangs in the balance. If we could be of assistance to you in response today, why not let that be known, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing.